This is HPR episode 1702 entitled Fostum 2015 part 5 of 5 and is part of the series interviews. It is hosted by Ken Fallon and is about 62 minutes long. The summary is Reactos, Corios, Wolfs, Picode, Ultimaker, Corboot and Flashroam, Satnugs. This episode of HBR is brought to you by anhonesthost.com. Get 15% discount on all shared hosting with the offer code HPR15. That's HPR15. Better web hosting that's honest and fair at anhonesthost.com. Hi everybody, this is Ken Fallon, we're at the AW Building, and we're now talking to the guys at ReactOS, and you are? I am Alexey Bragin from ReactOS Project, I'm coordinator of this project. Okay, so just to tell the folks at home what ReactOS is and what you're trying to do. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty interesting project, I'm involved in it for about 10 years, and this project is about creating an operating system. However, we are not basing it on, on Linux or on BSD. We do our own kernel from scratch. And the key point is that we are binary compatible with existing Windows applications and existing Windows drivers. This is the key point of the whole project. So you're building a clone of Microsoft Windows, I guess. Yes, kind of this. It's, it's not totally correct to call it this way. However, <laughs> uh, majority of people call it this way. And, uh, well, we, do, we also do this. What? How did you start? You woke up one morning and decided, I want to write this. How did the project start? Exactly. Exactly. It's a great to ask this question because my personal story of being involved in ReactOS was that, like uh, I saw how Linux emerged from Unix and I had an idea. Why don't uh, such a project exist for Windows? Why don't people make a free Windows clone? And I was browsing the internet. There was no Google back then in 2000 year. Uh-huh. And I browsed and I looked for, I found some, some like five different projects, which were quite, quite small. And one of them was called ReactOS. It was quite advanced back then. It was able to boot into text mode console. It didn't support any Windows uh, applications back then. But then over time, we built it module by module. And now it is able to, to load such complex uh, applications like Microsoft Office and uh, we support some video drivers natively so it's uh, it's really intriguing for me it was uh, like a totally new experience are you sharing any of the code with uh, projects like wine or those projects absolutely it's uh, it's so great that that these projects exist because uh, wine is essential for us it's uh, like at least half of our user mode uh, code However, we don't share that much code in kernel mode, unfortunately, because uh, Linux is uh, totally different architecture and uh, BSD also totally different architecture. But uh, other projects also use our code base. Uh, for example, this is this wrapper and uh, some other projects. Also, there is, for example, FreeType library, yeah. which is a great library, and we use this uh, for it saves us like many hours of coding time. So it's it's great that so many people, so many free open source projects exist. We wouldn't be able to build reactors without all those. 
And are there any people running uh, ReactOS in their businesses? Uh, ReactOS is not is not ready yet uh, for production. Okay. It's an alpha stage. However, we occasionally see different photos from throughout the world. Like we see uh, something like Chinese supermarket where cash desks were running ReactOS. I did not believe myself in this photo, but <laughs> but it's it's kind of real. So. And uh, we had similar experience from other parts of the world, mostly of some some other countries. I did not see it myself, but people run it somewhere, and I, I'm I'm really <laughs> surprised. And will the Windows viruses and all that stuff run on React OS as well? Absolutely, this is our point. <laughs> you want the viruses running? Okay. Yeah, good. some viruses are compatible. We can stamp on them. But their reactor is compatible. But really many viruses are based on some very, very Windows-specific stuff like uh, addressing directly by by uh, direct memory addresses and things like that. Fortunately, this breaks them on reactor S. But still, may, may, many viruses would be compatible, absolutely. Okay. And uh, you were saying that you were able to run Microsoft Office on it, any particular versions, or is it just the older versions? Uh, 2013, if I don't mistake, yeah. And 2007 also runs. So yes. could I run this in a virtual machine to run that one application that will only run on Windows? Absolutely. This is a preferred way to, to test ReactOS. However, also we have uh, live CDs, yeah. which are accessible from, from the desk. Yeah. They, uh, you can use them to to boot your laptop, and it would not damage your hard disk in any way because it's an experimental project. That's absolutely fantastic. I have a old application that I needed to run, and uh, when I booted the virtual machine for XP, it wanted to register, uh, and it wouldn't run anymore. So, yeah. <laughs> so this is an ideal solution. Okay, uh, are you going to be giving any talks here at the show, or are you just going to be on the booth the whole time? No, this year we're not giving talks. I gave I gave a, a big talk about uh, about seven years ago. It was them. It was pretty much nice. But uh, this way we decided to do only the stand here. So it's pretty crowded, and uh, it's, so, it's so nice to see so many people here. Yes, it's, it's great. Very big, yeah. Thank you very much for taking the time for the interview, and thanks very much for doing this. It might get might, might uh, allow me to uh, run some software very safely. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Hi everybody, my name is Ken Fallon. We're here at the AW building of FOSTEM 2015. I'm at the Core, o Core OS table, is that correct? And I'm talking to... Kelsey Hightower, I'm an engineer and evangelist at CoreOS. And I'm Jonathan Bull, software engineer at CoreOS. What is CoreOS? Uh, to me, the way I describe it quickly, it's uh, Google's infrastructure that you can download. But it's not actually written by Google, is it? Right, so it's written by CoreOS, and we've taken a lot of the patterns you see in large distributed computing systems, like you would typically find at Google, and our, one of our main flagship products is our operating system, which is a container-optimized Linux distribution. Yeah, so CoreOS is an automatically updating Linux distribution. So as soon as patches are available, we push them out and they update uh, distributions automatically. The idea is to make it totally seamless so that systems administrators don't even need to think about it. Updates just happen. Okay, and you're, you're following the mainline kernel, which would be pretty strange. Right, so we try to ship the latest and greatest stable kernel, so more, more like the tradition that you see in a rolling distro. 
So what we want to do is make sure that all the latest features like Overlay FS that just recently got merged into the kernel, IPv VLAN support that has got merged in the kernel, are available like weeks once they're available instead of like every two years. So that's our main goal there. And how do you manage, uh, how are you able to produce an operating system like that when you have companies like Red Hat and, and SUSE? So what's the difference between the two, I guess? I think it's our contract with the end user. So CoreOS and its philosophy and the technology, the OS itself, since it's a read-only root file system, the contract between us and your application, meaning we don't ship Ruby, Python, the JVM, we can actually update our OS in an atomic fashion since we expect all your applications to be running in a container. So we have a little bit more wiggle room and freedom to change the underlying operating system because the kernel is so stable that applications shouldn't be doing anything outside of like system calls. Right, so the, the, the operating system itself is very minimal. It's essentially just the kernel, uh, systemd, the init system, and an SSH server, and then something like Docker to be able to run application containers. So we don't provide any of the standard sort of, you know, JVM or Python or anything like that. So we don't have to worry about maintaining those and providing maintaining application compatibility. Um, so it's, 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 it's a much smaller operating system. We use vanilla upstream components wherever possible. Um, okay, and um, are you a company or are you, uh, so, or are you how are you organized? Yeah, so, so we're a startup based out of San Francisco, California. Uh, we're post-series A, so we're in the stage now where we have a business model and we're selling services and software. We're a software company first. So our main products are CoreOS, we sell commercial support on that, consulting services, and accessories around that, distributed computing like Docker registries, we have our own runtime container, Rocket, things like that. And are, those, are you working on an open core model or are those open as well? Everything is open source, so all of our technology is open source. The only things that are not open source are things like our Docker registry or some of our GUI applications that sit on top. But all of the core technology, etcd, the operating system, there's no premium model. It's all open source, and then we just add value on top. Guys, thank you very much for your time. Thank Thanks you. We're at Saya SSL, is that right? Uh, we pronounce it C Yazzle. C Yazzle. Okay, can you spell that? That's Charlie Yankee Alpha Sierra Sierra Lima. And Correct. that's a SSL library. Yeah, so we're a lightweight, portable SSL library. Okay. Yeah. That's been very much in the news of late, SSL libraries. Uh, SSL in general has. Yeah. Yes. And uh, what makes you different from OpenSSL or LibreSSL? Yeah, so uh, we focus on a couple of things. Yeah. So we've written CSL from the ground up, from scratch, yeah. in 2006. Okay. And um, we focus on the embedded market, um, mainly. So we focus on portability, uh, size. Yeah. So we're 20 times smaller than OpenSSL in a okay. typical build, with a footprint size of around 60 to 100 kilobytes. Yeah. Okay. So that really pays off on you know a small resource-constrained device. Yeah. Now... Um, do you lose a lot of the functionality then as a result of that? Uh, no, that's a full uh, TLS one point up to TLS one point two client and server. Okay, and server. Yep. Okay. And uh, we're very portable. We support about twenty operating systems out of the box. Yeah. So you know people don't have to spend time porting to a new platform. Okay. Most likely we'll support it. Uh, and then we support a handful, you know, five to six embedded hardware crypto engines. Yeah. So we can take advantage of hardware cryptography on the device. 
Okay, very good. And uh, what sort of license is it released under? Uh, this is Seattle is a dual license product. Okay. Uh, so it's dual license under the GPL version two and a commercial license. Okay. And why would I pick one over the other? Uh, GPL two version two either makes sense for an open source project they can tolerate that, or for someone who's prototyping. Yeah. So it allows someone to download it off our website and start playing with it right away. Yeah. Uh, now the commercial commercial license is for a commercial application who doesn't want to abide by the terms of the GPL version two. Yeah. So. Being that it's the same code base, the license headers just change. It makes it for a seamless, uh, a seamless move from GPL to commercial. Okay, but then if I was contributing to the project, I would need to sign some sort of agreement over to you, wouldn't I? Right. We have people who fill out a contributor agreement. Yeah. When they want to contribute back to CS, and they give up their rights to the GPL for the closed version, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say they give up their rights. They're uh, allowing you. They're giving you also the right to cross license it. Right. They're contributing back. They're they're giving us ownership of their changes. Yeah. Okay. Right. Very good. And are there many people running with this application? Um, yeah, we have several hundred uh, customers around the world, and that's growing. Yeah. Um, we've doubled within the last year. Yeah. Uh, both revenue and and close to employees. Okay. Very good. And do you um, you know how do I know that the code is secure with the are, are, you, are there going to be audits done, or you know, so, how do I get that warm, fuzzy feeling? Yeah, sure. <laughs> so we've been around this nearly ten years. Yeah, uh, we've had you know hundreds of commercial customers look at us. We've had lots of open source people look at us. We work all the time with uh, universities and academics who are you know testing new. They're looking for vulnerabilities. They're testing SSL libraries and crypto libraries to see if they're exactly that, if they're yeah. robust and secure. So the, the GPL version is exactly the same as the commercial version, so that somebody can uh, research it, can download the code, hack in it as much as they want, and then uh, report back the bugs to you. Or yeah, exact same code base. <coughs> we uh, we were born out of MySQL, kind of. Yeah. They wanted a clean room SSL library. Okay. And they they have the same license model, dual license, GPL commercial. Very good. So we followed their license. So is there anything new coming up this year that you want to tell people about? Uh, yeah, we uh, we're hiring more and more developers so okay. we can be more and more progressive. Yeah. So we're pretty excited about being one of the first ones to hopefully implement TLS 1.3. Yeah. Uh, we're gonna have some new crypto stuff coming up. So Curve 255.19, okay. ED 255.19, um, and we also have added support for the ChaCha 20 and Poly 1305 okay. algorithms. So those are two new ones that Apple is pushing big with the HomeKit. Uh, so we expect them to be popular in, in IoT and smart home applications. Okay, yeah. So, and uh, I guess there's a, a lot of uh, a lot of push now with the Internet of Things to have SSL devices everywhere. There is. Uh, it's almost a necessity these days. Yeah, it kind if, of is, yeah. if a device communicates, you're probably going to be in trouble if it's not secure. Yeah, sooner or later you're going to get the call doc. Are you giving talks at all, or are you just going to be focused uh, here for the... This year we're just focused on the stand. Yeah, and if people want more information, they can get it at your uh, website. Wolf. So uh, what's the difference between Wolfos SSL and and the name, which I can't pronounce? Yeah, so let me clarify that. Uh, Wolf SSL is our company name. Yeah. And our product name is Seazzle. Seazzle. Wolf and SSL is a lot easier to remember. One thing to keep in mind, probably within the next month, we're going to be changing and rebranding CSL as Wolf SSL. Yeah, hopefully so no it, harm. It should be much more consistent. 
<laughs> yeah, and you get a nice cool logo as well. Right. Well, okay, thank you very much for taking the time and enjoy the rest of the show. You're welcome. And I'm talking to Pico TCP, and your name is? Martin. Martin. What is Pico, what is Pico TCP? Uh, Pico TCP is the uh, embedded TCP IP stack uh, for your reference. Because uh, it's beyond the far most, the smallest and most modular uh, Pico TCP stack on the market. You can um, unplug each module. If you want uh, to have a very small uh, stack, you can all also say, I want uh, an IP layer and a TCP protocol and that, and that's everything I need. So you just configure it to build this, and you can get started with a few kilobytes of, a uh, few tens of kilobytes of, of uh, flash and RAM memory. Oh, very good. So really focused on the embedded market, I guess. Yeah, indeed, indeed, indeed. And are you a project or a company? Uh, we are a company. And the project started from uh, one of our um, developers who, in his free time, who said, well, I want to make uh, the best TCP IP stack in the world. And uh, yeah, he went started. And then at uh, some point he said, maybe we can do this uh, as an internal project. And uh, that's the point where uh, Pico TCP was born. And um, what sort of licenses is it available under? Uh, we have uh, some dual licensing here. Um, we support a GPL v2 license yeah. and we have also a commercial license for uh, companies who want to use it uh, and sell uh, products with Pico TCP. So if, if I was contributing my changes back I'd need to sign a contributor agreement with you guys. Yeah I need yeah yeah yeah. So um, um, do you maintain uh, the same code base or is it always um, is everything the same? Uh, we have one code base. It's on GitHub. It's uh, free for everyone to clone. Um, yeah. Okay. And you find that businesses are... Uh, have you shifted in many products? Sorry? Have many uh, devices been shipped using Pico TCP? Um, not, uh, not ready, but because we are pretty young. But we have uh, already uh, some customers and uh, some people who are interested to uh, use Pico TCP on a large scale of uh, embedded devices. Okay. And um, do you support IPv6? Yeah, we do. We, we do actually both. You can make a hybrid stack if you want. Okay. And do you support things like uh, IPsec and that sort of thing? Uh, IPsec we don't support uh, at this point. But uh, we are always open to uh, imp implement new protocols. Okay, and so I say I was a company and I wanted, desperately had loads of money and I wanted that, for instance. I could contract you to do that under the GPL if I wanted. Yeah, of course. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah. So, um, what uh, language is it written in? Uh, it's written in C, it's plain C. Yeah. yeah. And um, is there anything else? You, you keep your code on GitHub, it's under GPL yeah, yeah, V3. Yeah, yeah. Are you going to be given any talks here? Yeah, of course. Uh, we have uh, two talks. Uh, one is about mesh networking, uh, where we uh, promote PicoTCP as a um, protocol where we can use OLSR to uh, make large uh, mesh networks uh, with small devices. Have you actually done that in practice? Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. Yeah. And it works okay? Yeah, it works. Yeah, yeah. And for, yeah, for more figures, of course, uh, you should join uh, the presentation uh, because there our uh, mesh networking specialist will be there. So. Oh, fantastic. 
Um, if I forget to put the link into the show notes, it will be available on the FOSDEM website for people who are listening to the show. Anything else coming up in this year that uh, you want to tell us about? Um, we are every time import, uh, implementing new protocols. Yep. Uh, next to this, we are also a very... Uh, we think it's very important to have a good code quality. So we are constantly constantly uh, monitoring our code quality uh, through uh, Jenkins, a continuous integration system. Uh, we have uh, static code analysis through TIX. Uh, that's uh, a, a big tool that uh, checks things like um, um, code coverage, um, compiler warnings, um, static uh, code analysis, uh, things like memory leaks and, thing, uh, and, and, and other stuff at, at uh, plain side of the code yeah. and um, we also have uh, a lot of tests that run on targets on embedded targets uh, to test uh, if the RFC compliance uh, is good if everything works as it should be and all those things are run every night uh, so we have a nightly build but we have all the, also nightly tests and every, t- every time we commit we have uh, a lot of uh, tests are, that are scheduled at that point Okay, very good. Thank you very much for your time and enjoy the rest of the show. Okay, thank you. We've come over to the Ultimaker. Ultimaker. And your name is? My name is Oliver. And what are you doing here? What are we doing here? We're showing off our amazing 3D printers, uh, which uh, are fully open source, and that's why we're at FOSDEM. And are you a company that makes these devices? Yes, Ultimaker is um, the number one uh, in quality, especially a printer, 3D printer manufacturer. We're from uh, the Netherlands. Uh, we make a Dutch product. And um, as I said, we're fully open source. Ah, very good. And how do you make your money on this if this is fully open source? We sell the printers, the physical printers. That's where we make our money. Okay. Uh, we have a software uh, that's used to take the 3D model and turn it into something the printer understands, yeah. uh, which is uh, for free. You can download it. Everybody can get it. Uh, we have uh, firmware on there that's community developed. It's, it's Marlin. It's from uh, other 3D prints use it well. So there's no money there. Uh, the design of the printer is open source as well. Uh, so, so everybody can build it, uh, but uh, we build it, assemble it, and uh, ship it, and that's where uh, our income is from. Could I like buy it as a case and put it together? Buy it as a case and put it together myself? Uh, yes, um, obviously our listeners cannot see it, but over here we have our Ultimate Original, which is a wooden uh, uh, a wooden version of uh, our printer. Yeah. It's uh, the first one uh, that uh, got into production. It was targeted towards makers and hackers. Uh, that was the, the idea of the printer, which is a full, it's sold as a kit, and it's uh, fully self-assemblable. It takes about 8 to 10 hours, uh, though, to assemble. It's a lot of screws and lots of bits and pieces, but it's certainly doable. Uh, and the two, two printers that uh, we have in front of us are the more consumer-oriented versions. Um, you could assemble it if you would be able to get the materials. Uh, that's the tricky part here. That's why we sell it as a, as a, 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 a unit. And what sort of plastic do you... Describe it to me, what what this thing does. (laughs) What this thing does is, if you've ever seen a hot glue gun uh, that you uh, you fix things with... um, It's a very expensive hot glue gun, is what you're saying. It's a very expensive hot glue gun. Uh, uh, If you you, uh, backtrack it in in a sense, uh, somebody brought out a, a 3D printing pen which yeah. really is just a hot glue gun. Yeah. 
uh, and it's based on the same principle. It just, this one just does all the movement for you. You, you, you. you don't have to put down layer for layer for layer that you're, you would do with your hot glue gun. Uh, you can, the machine does it for you. And this is a single color printer? This is a single color printer. Uh, you can change the filament uh, uh, during the print. There's options for it in the software, and you know, stop at this height, and so I can change the filament. There's options for that, but it doesn't do anything like that by itself. So when we say it's a printer, you've got an X, you've got an X axis, uh, Y axis, and the place itself is heated. Place itself is heated and the place goes up and down on the bottom. Yes, okay. exactly. Uh, the, this bigger unit has a heated uh, plate. The small one, the really small one that we have now, does not have a heated bed. It's to bring make it a little bit more affordable. And what's the advantage of having a heated plate? By the uh, adhesion, plastic adhesion. Uh, the plastic that we print uh, best adheses uh, either to uh, um, blue masking tape that a lot of painters use um, and uh, a, a warm surface. Because, yeah, it's a pure adhesion issue. So if you've got blue masking tape, you don't need a heated. You, do, I think personally, I think the prints uh, without ta tape turn out nicer. You can have uh, a mirror smooth finish yeah. uh, because the plastic flows out a little bit onto the glass, okay. uh, and the masking tape will always leave the, the riddles from the tape itself. Okay. Uh, sometimes the tape will stick to your uh, object that you're printing. You have to replace the tape every once in a while because it tears. Um, and if you don't put it on perfectly, uh, you will also see that in your result. It is, uh, as I said, more affordable, more easier to use. Uh, and, and that. Are you making a profit? I'm sorry? Are you making a profit? Are you On the printers, yes. yes. Are we're, you, we're a healthy company at this moment. That's excellent news. Can I come work for you? <laughs> no, uh, so what is the maximum size that you can build with one of these printers? Um, the build volume of this one is very roughly estimated because I don't know it by heart, but it's about 20 by 20 by 20. So give me give me an idea. Um, size of a skull. <laughs> well, look at the object here. I think this robot I have in my hand right now, which is what is it? About almost 20 centimeters in height. About is, six is, inches, I guess. Six, oh, of course, yes, yeah. Yeah, and we have an international audience, so we need to. <laughs> um, yeah, that's about the height you can print with this one. Uh, Volume-wise, you can go a little bit wider, obviously, but also 20 uh, centimeters, so about six inches, uh, six, seven inches uh, in, in length and width. Okay, I'm bracing myself now for the next question. <laughs> How much does it cost? That's a very difficult question. Um, what <laughs> price can you put on low? <laughs> if you let, I always tell people, uh, I'll, uh, I'll tell you the price in a minute, but I always tell people, you only buy one printer, and after that, all the Christmas and birthday presents are free. There you go. For yeah. your set for life. Yeah. Now, the kit version is a thousand euros without taxes. Oh my god. Yeah. It's, it's not that bad, actually. If, if it's if not you, actually. If you, you look go at back the components, yeah. components are not that cheap that are in it. Uh, the small one here, which comes pre-assembled, is uh, 1,500 euros. Yeah. Uh, this one comes in at 2,000 euros. Yeah. And the bigger one that uh, we announced to get, together with the really small one, the last CES, uh, is uh, about... 15 centimeters higher. Okay, and you can basically build more. It's the same size, just 30 centimeters higher. I know a lot of people are having a heart attack now listening to this at home. I know, but it's then different. on the other hand, it's you know, you look at laser so. printers from, oh. you know, I can remember five, ten years ago, laser printers were thousands of. Yes, yes, yeah, absolutely. And for, as a mechanical engineer, we, we, we did a lot of prototyping. 
and you will spend that just to get the plastic components well, yeah, and it goes wrong and you have to wait another six weeks to get them yeah. redone again so it's that, that's sort of one of the markets that we're, we're well not aiming for but it's a very interesting market is um, companies businesses architects they just buy these because for them 2500 euros is not a lot of money nothing. it's, it's yeah. nothing yeah. Uh, a 40,000 mach- 50,000 machine from one of the big players that's different uh, yeah, yeah, category yeah. Uh, so now you have a relatively cheap printer um, you can build your model in a, in a few hours maybe over the weekend and you have your thing even if your company has a big a big machine that costs a lot, they only have probably one, maybe yeah. two if you're really lucky. And it's owned by Bob and the You have to queue yeah. for it, and you know, it's all a lot of red tape. This you can just give one to, to each office or each employee even if you want to. Yeah, yeah. So, so it, it's really uh, accessible that way. Why does that one seem a lot faster than this one? Uh, this one is still printing the bottom layer right now, okay. and the bottom layer is more sensitive than the rest. Uh, uh, so we print that a little bit slower, so it, it comes out nicer. So it's nice and smooth, so it adheres nicely. Uh, and um, once you're done with the bottom layer, you can ramp up the speed. Okay. Where are you based in the Netherlands? Uh, just below Utrecht, in Geldermosse. Geldermosse. <laughs> Excellent. I've run out of questions. What's the, what's the news? The news is the small printer, the bigger printer. The small, and the, pre- the small printer and the big printer, we just announced at CES, and we hope to start shipping them uh, April. Yeah. And everything's open source, everything's free? Everything's open source. Uh, we're software developers, so this is not a sales and marketing event to us. Yeah. Uh, I explicitly uh, told our company, our bosses, that we want to go here because this is from developers for developers. Yes. It's much different than at CES. At CES, we don't go there. So the you came to be a developer. Do you know the free software? So, so to answer your earlier question, um, the software that we use to convert a 3D model to something a printer understands yeah. is fully open source. Yeah. Uh, the software, the firmware that drives the printer is fully open source. Um, the electronics design is, although it is LTM files, uh, the files themselves are open source, yeah. the GPL. Uh, the mechanical designs are open source. Uh, the license at the moment is uh, Creative Commons by ShareAlike with the non-commercial closure added, uh, which uh, I'm personally hoping uh, to push my bosses uh, to maybe drop that, uh, which is my personal opinion, of course. It's, it's not uh, what the company uh, wants or, or maybe they do. I don't know yet. Uh, but that, in that case, we can drop uh, the non-commercial bit. Then we become open hardware. And I think we even could become a uh, free software foundation uh, uh, approved. Yeah, which would be uh, pretty impressive. Can I steal some of the little robots? You can have as many I as you want. I need three and of different colors specifically. <laughs> you or, can uh, have six if you thank want. You very much. <laughs> it cost uh, me. It cost me two months to print them. Because, <laughs> Did it? Yeah. Well, they're all printed on, on uh, our, our own printers. Yeah. No, it's it's uh, fantastic. Thank you very much for taking the time, and I uh, hope to bump into you in the Netherlands <laughs> sometime soon. We're talking to Carl Daniel Heilfinger. Okay, and Carl, you're representing two projects here. What are they? Um, the first is the Corboot project, and the second is the Flashroom project. Corboot is <coughs> a replacement for your BIOS and EFI. It actually does that not only quite well, but it really excels at that. You might have used the device running Core Boot. You might just have not noticed. For example, the Chromebooks um, from Google, those laptops are pretty much all running Core Boot. Now, on the other hand, FlashROM... <coughs> 
is a tool which is also not that well known. It's very useful if you, for example, plan to reflash or update your BIOS, change the firmware of the PXE ROM on your network card, want to change the firmware of your monitor, or maybe update the firmware of your DVD drive. All that stuff is something which you can do from user space, from Linux, from BSD, or other operating systems, even MS-DOS, with the help of Flash ROM. So these are the annoying little programs that you download from Dell and you must be running a version of Windows. It yeah. replaces that. Yes, uh, not only that. Uh, rebooting, rebooting just to make a BIOS update or a firmware update, it's, it's silly, isn't it? It's uh, something which, um, let's just say, rebooting into a specially designated Windows DVD to update your BIOS is probably not something which you would associate with reliability. So FlashRoom tends to do away with all that and it does so nicely. Well, on the other hand, Coreboot <coughs> is something which um, is okay. Admittedly, I'm a fan of Coreboot, otherwise I wouldn't be here at FOSLAM um, doing a booth for Coreboot and FlashRoom. Coreboot is something which also has real benefits for you. It's booting faster than EFI and BIOS, quite noticeably so. We get down to half a second uh, of from power on to bootloader uh, in a few configurations. Usually it's below one and a half seconds, which is faster than BIOS and EFI if you think of it. The other benefit of Core Boot is <coughs> that you can actually have the source code of the stuff which is running in your firmware and that's uh, quite nice from a freedom point of view but I also know that many people do not really care that much about it as long as they know the stuff is secure and if you have the source code you at least have the theoretical ability of uh, to inspect it. Well, I know most people don't read the source code of uh, the stuff they are using, but still they would have had would have the ch chance to do so. And uh, then there's also the point that Core Boot <coughs> is um, a bit easier to debug than a BIOS. For example, think of the last time you tried to find out why a machine didn't boot. Mm -hmm. Think of it as, uh, did you hear those beep, 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 beep? codes from your BIOS. Mm -hmm. The information you get from that is exactly mostly useless. Mm -hmm. Then you can plug in some post code diagnostics card which gives you a two-digit uh, postcode which tells you that in this special BIOS version there might be something wrong. With Core Boot you get full debug on a serial port or a USB port which tells you like the message on uh, Linux uh, kernel uh, in detail what went wrong or what didn't go wrong. So you also have great diagnostics, have the freedom aspect and also have the security aspect. And Coreboot does not ship with backdoors compared to pretty much every other uh, BIOS or EFI based laptop you can buy out there. Right. The thems are suing words, I would imagine. Um, let's just say um, that nowadays uh, it's hardly impossible, well, except for maybe the Chromebooks, uh, to buy a laptop without those backdoors. Now let, let's talk backdoors, let's talk clear text, let's talk about why I call them backdoors. Um, I should call them rootkits, which would be more accurate, uh, but uh, that's even more fighting words. 
So <clears throat> the point is, nowadays you get a feature which is called anti-theft solution. Okay. Which means um, in the most common implementation, your BIOS accesses your hard or your EFI accesses your hard drive, checks whether the Linux, OS X or Windows running there has the persistent rootkit part um, of this uh, anti-theft module installed. And if not, your Linux, Windows or whatever will be infected with a nice rootkit which can talk home just in case somebody steals your laptop and boots it and is stupid enough to do that with the network attached. Of course, that's also not exactly optimal if you want to be in full control of your laptop and you don't care about theft protection. Then you rather not have a rootkit in your machine, especially a persistent rootkit, which won't even be removed after exchanging the hard disk because the BIOS or EFI will always reinstall, and reinstall it again. So this is like a feature of BIOS, of EFI? It's not really a feature, but it's an add-on module to EFI and BIOS, which is nowadays shipped by pretty much every vendor for... Well, it's a feature. It's theft protection. Everybody wants it. Don't you? Okay. And when you say it calls back, who who's it calling back to? <clears throat> Usually uh, servers uh, either from the company sell selling that add-on module... Um, or um, the service of your um, laptop vendor. And to be honest, uh, if your laptop is not stolen, this thing is active, um, anybody is sitting at that vendor, whether it be uh, some uh, employee goofing off or somebody from a um, criminal organization who doesn't like you, can get control of your laptop. And this has in the past been implemented very badly. It has also been demonstrated in the past that you can exploit quite a few of those theft protection systems and get remote control, even if you're not from the vendor, not authorized. Okay, that's great news here for everybody to hear. And Coreboot, how do I go about getting that? Well, <clears throat> now there's a catch. Everything which is great uh, usually has a catch. With Coreboot, the biggest... Uh, well, let's call it a problem. Issue is not the right word. The biggest problem is that quite a few vendors are not interested in Coreboot, are not interested in cooperating. Coreboot is not just like some operating system which you can just install. Coreboot <coughs> needs to know stuff about the hardware, stuff you can't even discover on uh, current hardware. So sometimes you need to break out a logic probe and find out some of the wiring. It's gotten better in the last few years. For example, the PCI slots died, which killed quite a few interrupt routing problems we had. Um, <clears throat> well, we had to, uh, to figure out each time. So essentially, Coreboot needs to support your processor. It needs to support your chipset. Now, if that both points are a given, then you can start porting Coreboot to your laptop, desktop, server, or whatever. And then it's a matter of <coughs> p uh, picking the right pieces uh, together, piecing them together, wiring it all up, and hoping it works. Um, it usually doesn't work on the first try. And, for example, laptops usually also have to have some funny interactions with backlight control and stuff like that. So you have to reverse engineer quite a lot of stuff if your laptop or desktop or whatever is not ready to support it. However, 
if you follow the rainbow and start to dig for a pot of gold and your machine is actually on the list of supported boards by Coreboot, it's pretty easy. It's usually on laptops, just opening them up, um, <clears throat> attaching an external programmer to um, the flash chip on the main board and writing a working core boot image on that. And uh, if you ask nicely, we'll give you a reference image. Otherwise, um, um, it's fully supported to compile those images on your own and select your own configuration options. And then, um, if you pick the right image, um, you get you reboot and you have a machine with core boot, and it's running nicely and fast. Uh, well, uh, that boots goes fast at least. It boots fast, and um, well, I think there might be some enthusiasts out there who do high-end uh, audio processing. For example, if you're doing a podcast, you want to do some live uh, audio source mixing, something like that. Maybe you might have noticed that sometimes you're, you get X runs with Alzar, something like that, or um, yeah, latency, notice, noticeable latency. It's exactly the thing you don't want if you do something like audio processing, industrial control or similar. With Coreboot one of the additional big benefits is that you can avoid running code in the background. Most uh, EFI and BIOS uh, tend to keep stuff running in the background for various management tasks. Unless absolutely necessary Coreboot does not do that. There's no background task running. Um, this is uh, yeah, um, great from a latency perspective. It's also great from a security perspective because if you, for example, are working <coughs> in, let's just say, highly secure facilities uh, or, for example, if you're doing government, military work, stuff like that, um, you want to be very m sure of what is running on your machine. Yeah. Um, First of all, you want to be trusting the firmware. And second of all, after the firmware is gone and somebody has evaluated your operating system, you do not want any code running in the background uh, messing with your operating system. So Coreboot does away with all that unless absolutely necessary. And even then, it's doing only the minimal amount of work. So for, for a latency perspective and also from a security uh, holistic security point of view it's also a great thing to run core boot okay how did you uh, are you in a, how did you get into uh, doing core boot in the first place oh well uh, <laughs> it's a long story back when the OLPC initiative the one laptop per child initi initiative uh, brought out their first prototype uh, they had um, <clears throat> some commercial bias running on them uh, with the explicit stated goal of replacing that with core boot. And I um, was very interested in that, had been following core boot passively for, yeah, well, one or two years. And I was one of my chance, well, it was not only one of my chances, it was the chance for me to get my feet dirty <clears throat> or my feet into the water. And uh, I started uh, helping with the effort of getting Coreboot to run on the old PC X01. Admittedly, nowadays the XO uh, laptops do not run Coreboot. Uh, they do run open firmware, which is also <coughs> open source and was a bit more suited to what they were doing. Still, Coreboot is a 
really great choice, especially because it supports such an amount of diverse uh, chipsets, uh, processors, and also hardware. We have hundreds of laptops or boards, uh, well, not hundreds of laptops, but hundreds of different main boards support it. Okay. And you have a list of these on the website so that uh, I don't need to reinvent the wheel. Um, we do have a wiki, which is actually pretty current. We also have um, some uh, board status board, which tests uh, whether the current code still compiles uh, for your favorite board. Um, some vendors like Google are doing integration testing and checking whether the core boot they are, uh, branch they are developing uh, still works on the devices they are shipping. Uh, and they are shipping also means, well, all Chromebooks. So there is quite some testing going on. And yes, the website is uh, saying a lot. But um, I also have to admit that our website is not always current in all aspects. So even if you don't find uh, something listed on our website, um, download our source code. How to do that is listed on our website, on the uh -huh. Coreboot website. And uh, dig around uh, the source tree, you might find your chipset or your CPU listed, even if it's not mentioned in the wiki. So what's the worst that can happen when... Um, the worst that can happen um, when you um, ask the core boot uh, mailing list whether your hardware is supported is can you please go and read the wiki um, when uh, now uh, let's talk more about uh, what's the worst that can happen if you try to co uh, get core boot running on your board yeah. the worst case that can happen is that uh, your machine is a brick temporarily Uh -huh. So, um, if flashing, uh, you flashed a core boot image which does not work for your machine, the machine will not boot or only boot partially, um, then you have to attach an external programmer to the flash shop of your laptop or board and uh, reflash a hopefully better working image or a backup of the previous BIOS or EFI. So it's not really dead, but you may have to open the machine and attach um, a clip to the flash chip, which is not that hard. Soldering is usually not involved unless uh, somebody put epoxy all over your main board and you can't access the flash chip. In that case, you might have to scrap away some epoxy. But, um, well, if you're not afraid of opening your machine... Um, then nothing really can happen. You shouldn't maybe try to reflash core boot while you're traveling and have no uh, external backup uh, doing that. Well, some of us did that and it worked out, but it's not something I would recommend to somebody for the first time. For eh? the first time, yeah. 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 Uh, but uh, still, it's um, a lot of fun to be had with. And yeah, the reflashing is something you would do with flash ROM. Okay. So, and that, that's uh, where FlashRoom enters the picture again. And FlashRoom can abuse pretty much any device to flash pretty much any chip. We have had people who abused an Intel network card, uh, desold the flash chip from that one, put some wires on there instead, and connected those wires to the flash chip of a second main board, and then used the network card together with FlashRoom to reflash the BIOS of the other main board. It does work. It's weird. People will look at you like you're crazy, but actually FlashRoom is meant to do that. 
Okay, okay. Um, this is so far out of my uh, sphere of uh, knowledge. I'm just going to find out whatever laptop you're using and make sure I buy the exact same one. Yeah, well, that um, very well-supported model is mm, the ThinkPad G60. It's pretty old, but it's... Um, it's sturdy, it's reliable, it's time-tested. Nowadays, we also support many m- more modern laptops of the G-series and of the X-series. All so IBMs. All IBMs. Well, yeah, yeah. Lenovo nowadays. Yeah, Lenovo, yeah. Um, there are also, a few, I think, a few HP laptops supported. Um, and I think uh, an AMD-based ThinkPad is also supported. And then, of course, all those Chromebooks. And then there was uh, various uh, desktop and server main boards. But uh, usually the wiki is um, pretty um, well up to date uh, regarding laptops. So if you see a laptop listed there, there's a good chance it will work out of the box. Okay, fantastic. So anything else that's going to happen this year that you want us to know about? Um. Yeah, an appeal to all the listeners out there. Apparently, some hardware vendors are still not aware of what Core Boot is. Yeah. Uh, especially the firmware departments. And the key to a hardware vendor is actually the salespeople, at least in my experience. So, if you talk to your uh, from from uh, your co- your company you talk to some hardware vendor and tell them yeah we would like to buy some hardware tell them that you might uh, want to have core boot on those laptops or on those servers on the servers it's easy to justify just you don't want 7 minutes of boot time you yeah, want yeah. something like 20 seconds or 2 seconds of boot time um and if enough salespeople hear the word core boot, they might start to inquire uh, with their management, what is this core boot stuff? And that might get us the awareness to actually have vendors listen to us and take us not as a competition, but actually as people who want to help them make their products better. That would be really, really great. And other than that, go out. Find some nice hardware uh, which is supported by Cordboot or which has CPU and chips that supported by Cordboot if you want to tinker and work with that. We'll try to help you and it will be great fun for everyone involved. Okay, with that, I'm going to end the interview. Thank you very much for taking the time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. And we're standing outside in the middle of a field, right beside somebody who's got what looks like a Yagi antenna. Well, actually, two of them. Oh. <laughs> tell us more, tell us more. What is it and why are you here? Who are you for a start? So, my name is Pieres Papadeas, and I'm a member of the Satnogs team from Athens, Greece. Satnogs, N-O-G-S? Uh, that's uh, S-A-T-N-O-G-S. Okay. Sierra Alpha Tango November Oscar Golf Sierra. That's that's pretty good. Are you an amateur operator or two? <laughs> Most of us are. So what Satnox is uh, is basically a ground station for tracking satellites. Um, okay. So you can see the antennas, and in the middle there is the tracking box, and yep. it has a gear assembly inside, yep. and you can track uh, satellites as they cross across the sky, and you can receive signals, demodulate them, record them, and then upload them back to the network. 
You can, can you? Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Very interesting. And you've got X and Y axis on this? Uh, yes, yeah, so we call them the azimuth and the altitude. Yeah. Uh, but yes, that's pretty much it. So you have 360 degrees on the azimuth and 0 to 90 degrees on the altitude. So you're going to be, if you're tracking, you'll be tracking the parabola? The, the half sphere, yeah. the hemisphere, basically, around you. Okay. And what sort, of, uh, what sort of interesting things are you doing for this? So we have thousands of satellites out there. And um, um, we are now in this setup, which is a typical setup. Uh, you can see a VHF antenna and a UHF antenna. Yeah. And we're focusing on satellites that use those antennas because we can receive the signals, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, most of them are CubeSats. Uh, lately, we have been having, we have been having hundreds of CubeSats. Uh, What's a CubeSat? A CubeSat is a really small satellite, 10 by 10 by 10 centimeters cube, uh, one kilo, uh, kilogram um, weight. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's used for small experiments by universities or projects or companies that want to deploy something really cheap uh, and really quickly uh, as a satellite. And uh, the transmission frequencies uh, that most of those CubeSats are using are VHF and UHF on those bands that we, yeah, yeah. Uh, we have the antennas. Uh, so we're helping tracking those satellites. Um, so imagine if you're at a university and you have uh, a CubeSat that you deployed uh, because you can only see it you know, like three or four times per day on your location. Yeah, you can use yeah. the distributed network I of ground stations. I see where you're going. Yes, and get the global coverage uh, and create a network for that. Sorry, yeah. So... Um, what happens here? They the signals come in. Uh, you you do you volunteer for a particular satellite or? Uh so it depends on the deployment. Right yeah. now, this is a tethered deployment, which means that uh, we control the specifics uh, of this deployment. So yeah. we we choose which satellite and which transponder we're going to be following, yeah. uh, and which frequency and blah blah blah. Uh, but generally, uh, a permanent setup of a satellite ground station would be something on top of a rooftop uh, connected to the network. So the network gets to say which ground station is going to uh, is going to do which operation, which uh, scheduled operation. So if you are an operator, you have a satellite, or you are a, uh, an amateur satellite observer, or you like satellites, you can go into the network, say, I want to follow this satellite with this frequency uh, during this time frame, and the network automatically calculates all the sightings from different ground stations and sends those observation observation schedules uh, to the ground stations. The ground stations execute them, record the messages, and bring them back to the network. How, uh, how fast are these satellites going past? Oh, it depends on the orbit, uh, but um, let's say a good pass would be something like 11 or 12 minutes, but okay. it really depends on the orbit, though. So, for for example, if you set one of these up, mm-hmm. it's likely that, you know, the whole day it'll be moving left, right, and, oh, yeah. and, and <laughs> oh, doing yeah. other... Oh, yeah, we need as many ground stations as possible. That's so, t- talk to me Talk me through this. This is a aluminium tripod. Have you built this yourself, or yes. have you purchased everything, this? Everything that you see is uh, designed and built uh, from scratch, uh, DIY, open hardware style, um, and software too open software obviously um, and uh, for the parts that are um, things that needed to connect between each other we have all the plastic pieces basically that you see are 3d printed parts yeah uh, so we designed them on FreeCAD, and uh, then we printed out uh, on uh, 3d printers um, TAS 3 from Lalsbot uh, in specific and um, then um, all the tracking mechanism inside is also 3D printed, the gears, the, all the assembly. Yeah. Um, and we're using also a commodity chip electronics hardware for, for the reception uh, side of things. So we're using an RTL SDR, um, okay. which is a DVBT China, really cheap uh, SDR yeah. Yeah. <laughs> dongle. Um, an Arduino, two Pololu drivers for the stepper motors, uh, and an LNA, um, the LNA for all, which is an upper hardware one. I thought like they making a an antennas kind of hard. 
Uh, not really. I mean, given the the right expertise, uh, fortunately, we do have in, in our team some RF, RF experts. Um, and they designed uh, in NEC um, the, the theoretical model. And then we designed it. Uh, we printed the parts. We construct the antenna. And using a vector network analyzer, we, we were able to match the frequencies and check if the theoretical model still works in practice, which it did. Yeah. And that's, that's the, the good part of it. So um, can I buy this online or do do I make it? So you can visit satnox.org, yeah. uh, which is the website that has all the information about how to build one. Yeah. Right now we don't supply any kits, although we plan to do that uh, in the future. Yeah. Um, and you can join the community and help us uh, you know, grow the project more, host the ground station or even build more yeah. around it. Would you need to, because um, you're receiving only, I guess, you would right need now, to yes. be a ham radio you wouldn't need any specific license to do Depends that. Depends on the legislation of your country. Yes. Yeah. Some countries, in some countries, it's kind of like a gray area whether you can yeah. actually own uh, something oh, yeah, that, yeah, yeah something yeah, that yeah, yeah. that can that receive. Can also on, transmit as well. Yeah, but it really depends on your or on your area. And then for transmitting, of course, you have to be a. On how big your fence is. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who who so, gets to see what's happening? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> how much uh, is that going to set me back? So everything from the tripod to the embedded PC to the SDR to the antennas to the tracking box uh, would be around three fifty euros. Oh, that's not bad, actually. Yeah, uh, it's actually uh, one-tenth of the commercially available equivalent in terms of the specifications. Yeah, and you get to find out very quickly if you have nice neighbours or not. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> so, cool. Um, anything else that's coming up on the project that uh, people want to know about? Say, say we, we you could build this. I know we have a lot of ham radio guys... Uh, yeah, that this would be no problem for them to build. Uh, they build it, and then what? The, what do they do? Go and then to? the the next stage is to deploy a Satnox client, which connects us, connects us back to the network. So instead of using it only for your own observations, making it available for other people around the world to use it. Yep. So contribute back to the network. That's yep. that's the thing. And then the generally for the project, the next steps are expanding the the bands that we're we're using. Right now, we're using only VHF and UHF, and then now we're expanding also to S band. Uh, that's two point four gigahertz uh, using dishes yeah. uh, so that requires some mechanical Ooh, changes yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the R&D team is working on that yeah. heavily and uh, we would welcome some, some contributions around that that's for sure uh, I I have my first show that I was supposed to uh, this is procrastination for you I was going to do how to point a satellite dish uh, as my show uh. I still haven't submitted it and it's been 10 years now so uh, <laughs> maybe it will, well, you, you maybe it will yeah, come once, yeah. <laughs> once we have it so anything new that's going to be coming up this year that I need to know about or yeah, global deployment. We just won the Hackett Day Prize, yeah. um, and uh, that was a, a huge uh, push for the project. Yeah. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, that's how I heard about you. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and now, given the budget that we we have, we can safely say that we can support and fund um, the construction and deployment of many ground stations around the world. Uh, so we plan to have at least fifty ground stations uh, in de- deployed and working around the world until the end of the year. Yeah. So we're focusing massively on that right now. Who is? Are there particular regions that you're not particularly well covered in? Well, pretty much everything right now. That's the third one that you see <laughs> right oh, Okay, here. so guys, yeah. Uh, it's, it's, you know, um, it's just new for for all of us. But um, right now, the, the community is working on uh, US, on Australia. We have Netherlands. We have uh, Argentina. Uh, and there is also a Singapore uh, guy. Okay. Um, so we, will be, we have to be focused on Russia, that's for sure, Africa, uh, and Czech, the Central America, and Pacific will be a, a big, uh, big thing. So if anyone of you has any 
any contact on uh, Pacific we Island. We have people all over the world, and I'm <laughs> sure they'll be clamoring. Be <laughs> yeah. A nice Pacific Island. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Oh, yeah. Okay, we fair enough. Station there. Um, uh, I had something else there that I wanted to ask you, but uh, it's completely gone out of my head. But, uh, yeah, you, you're giving a talk. So, yeah, tomorrow. Tomorrow, so people will be able to go to the FOSTEM website and see more of this. What's the weight like, and would I need to be a bit concerned about things like uh, lightning and stuff? Um, not really. It depends on where you deploy it. Yeah. And that's, uh, like, all different antennas. So yeah. you, you don't have to really be <laughs> worried about that. Plus, uh, the typical setup, that's the mobile setup, but the typical setup uh, includes a, a radome. So imagine a rendered dome. Yeah. Uh, so it's uh, kind of like a whole sphere around it. So we designed and built it uh, ourselves too. And that's for the permanent setup. So oh, we can okay. bring it here. Uh, so you don't have to be worried. If it's properly insulated and properly grounded, uh, you don't have to, to be worried. Okay. Fantastic stuff. Thank you very much for the uh, for the interview and good luck with the project. Thank you. And good luck with the talk tomorrow. Thank you.
You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.